0: I decided I want to begin every sermon watching my kids sing Great is Thy Faithfulness right before I have to come up. So, also after David's opening comments, I've made a mental note to have Jonathan do the last sermon of the year next year. So, heads up. What is good to be here with you bringing God's Word? Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can open up to John 16. That's where we're going to be at this morning. John 16, looking at uh, verses 4b through 15. Hear the word of the Lord to us this morning. It says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Grass withers, flowers fade. the Lord the Lord is forever. Let's pray. God, throughout the week, there are so many voices that we hear, voices of culture, sometimes our own. And God, now we come to your word, knowing that it is the one voice that we can consider everything in it is true. That in it, God, are riches, that you describe who you are, who we are, God, and what we need. And God, in this season of, of Christmas and Advent, God, I pray that you would remind our hearts. Why it is that we can celebrate and hope this time of year, even amidst while still living in a fallen and sinful and broken world. God, go before us now. Open our eyes, open our ears to hear your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the day after Christmas is always kind of interesting, right? There's all this build-up for the Christmas season. Um, I remember when you started not hearing about Christmas or, or seeing decorations until, like, you know, end of November, December. Now they start in, I don't know, August, or eventually there's just going to be no gap, right? It's just going to be, we're celebrating the year after or something. But there's all this build-up for Christmas. And for family, there's all these plans that we make. We're, we're deciding whose uh, house to go over and when and how we're going we're gonna to spend Christmas. And then the big day hits yesterday, right? Christmas morning, we have our different traditions, different things that we do. And then it's always interesting to me that the day after Christmas always kind of reveals two types of people, right? See, the first type is the one who you woke up this morning, and by 9 a.m., like, all the Christmas decorations were put back, right? It was as if it, like, didn't even happen. They just could not wait to kind of reset the house, right? And then there's the second kind of person, where they're wondering, how long will the HOA allow me to keep my Christmas lights on my house? Can I just keep them up until next year? Or how long can I, can I keep watering my Christmas tree? You see, I really want to extend this Christmas season. How many more Christmas movies can I watch? They're really kind of just a, a, a holiday thing, not just Christmas, so I'll just keep it lasting into January. That sounds kind of silly, but that also kind of brings up a question for us of how are we doing after this first Advent? When Christ comes into our world, we, we hear all these things, we sing the thrill of hope, right? A weary world rejoices. So how is our world doing right now, in this season, in between the advents, in between the two comings of Christ? And for you more personally, how are you doing? Do you feel equipped? Or do you feel like God sort of just puts you here? and that you're ill-equipped to handle everything that this world has to offer in all its sin and brokenness and fear. As we look at this text, I think what we're going to find is that God has given us everything we need to prepare us for this time in between the two Advents. This time is also, if you've heard this phrase, called the already and the not yet. It's the already, when Christ has come, He's established His kingdom right he is reigning and yet there's the not yet part that we wait for the full glorification of the kingdom of god that as christians as believers we excitedly look forward to but right now we're at this weird time where christ is reigning where as believers we see we know we have a personal relationship with christ and yet it's not fully fully realized until the coming of christ the second coming so between the advents what do we see to encourage us how is it that we can still rejoice If you're a note-taker, I stick with three points. So the first one we're going to see is that God has prepared us by His ascension. Then we're going to see that God has prepared us by sending His Spirit. And then lastly, we'll see that God has prepared us by His presence. So first, uh, God has prepared us by the ascension. start out, I want to look at where the disciples were at this point, right? This is Jesus talking. It says, verses four to six, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you, the disciples, are asking, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So from the disciples' perspective, uh, right, leading up to this, we had John 14. You have the the passage, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? This huge... Um, statement connecting us to Christ. Then you had John 15 two weeks ago. Jonathan Wisdom preached a great sermon. We heard about our connectedness to Christ and just how dependent we are on Him as the as vine, right? Well, now you can understand that at this point, the disciples had heard that, right? They heard Jesus talking about their need for Christ, about just how dependent they were on Christ. And, and maybe the disciples were thinking, all right, we got it, right? We're there. We see our need for you. And then Jesus says, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm leaving. (laughs) And you imagine the disciples might have been thinking, oh, that's still a thing, right? (laughs) Like you're still still going at this point. You're still going somewhere. And what happens next is so easy for us to miss, just like the disciples. See, the disciples were so distracted by the fact that they were not going to have the physical presence of Jesus with them that they missed a huge theological truth. It's interesting that Jesus says, none of you asks me. That, it's actually earlier, Peter actually asked Jesus, where are you going? Jesus said that because he said, right now, the kind of final hour, because sorrow has filled your heart, none of you are asking me, where am I going? Meaning, Jesus is saying, it's really important. And it's kind of shocking that instead of asking me and, and wondering what I just said, you're still just kind of sorrowful and sad. So, what is it that they were missing? Verse 5 says, but now I am going to him who sent me, right? They missed the ascension. They were missing the significance of the ascension. I want to pause here for application. You'll see I do that a lot, the youth pastor in me, pausing for us to kind of consider what does this mean for us? So much of our Christian life, I often think, would be easier, if we had the physical presence of Christ right here with us, right? So often, if I'm teaching or if I'm talking, especially to someone who rejects Christ, it'd be easier if I could just say, here, him, believe in him, right? This guy right here. And yet, in God's will, that's not what he has given for us to get between the Advents. And so for us, I want to kind of ask us, are we sometimes so focused on the fact that Christ isn't physically here with us that we miss the ascension, that we actually miss the reason why Christ is not physically here with us. You see, the reality is it's not wrong to long for the presence of Christ, right? This Advent, the sign behind me says, God with us. It's not wrong to celebrate uh, Christ's coming, to long to see Him, and yet are we like the disciples who Christ is looking at and saying, Man, you're missing something huge because you're so focused on the fact that I'm about to leave that you miss where I'm about to go and the significance of it for you. So, where is he going and why did he go there? Verse 10, in the middle of, of talking about the role of the Spirit, and we'll talk about that in point two, but it says, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Jesus says he's going to the Father, but also why is he going to the Father? First John 2, 1 John 2.1, I'll just read it for us. It says, my children, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There's that word again. And I realize we don't use this word advocate often, like in our everyday vocabulary, right? Definition of advocate, just looked it up, kind of helps us a little bit. It says, a person who publicly supports Or recommends a particular cause or policy. This means you can't understand the significance of the ascension of Christ without first understanding what does it mean that he is an advocate for us, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Well, real quick, so we just celebrated Christmas, right? It's all fresh on our heels yesterday. We talk about God with us, that he left his throne in heaven, he came down, he came into our mess, but he had a job to do. He had to offer Himself as a sacrifice. In order to do that, He had to succeed in every way that we failed. Every opportunity that we, in thought, word, and deed, had an opportunity to glorify God fully, to reflect the image of Christ fully, He passed in every way that we failed. But He did this not just in how He lived, but He did this in how He died. What we see on the cross is Jesus actually making a value statement, right? He's saying, my life is not as important as following the will of God the Father to restore you back to the presence of God. That's what the cross is saying. It's Jesus saying, this is more important, to follow through the plan of salvation, this unfolding plan of redemption throughout Scripture, that you would be brought back to God. But then after that, he didn't stay dead, right? He rose from the dead, and, and He was who He said that He is. I often say this when teaching students, and, and I always love that kind of weird look I get. So, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we're all wasting our time, right? None of us should have gone to church this morning. Like, you should have stayed home playing with your Christmas toys from yesterday and drinking coffee, because that's the best that this life is going to get. But if Christ rose from the dead, and we believe that He did, then it changes everything that it means that our lives then reflect him, reflect worship, that we have hope that he did pay the penalty for our sin. But then even more so than that, the ascension. I kind of thought about this. In seminary, one of my professors at one point uh, said, take out a piece of paper, and he said, write down like the gospel message. Just like what are the elements that you think are, are necessary to put down in order for someone to become a Christian, Right? So, as little prideful seminary students, we're like, oh, we got this, right? This is is our bread and butter. So, we wrote down, you know, uh, God created uh, Genesis 3, the fall of man, uh, the image of God. Uh, We walked through the prophets. We talked about the coming of Christ, and he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he's the Son of God, um, that he uh, was crucified, uh, and then that he rose from the dead, right? And 23 out of 25 of us in that class turned in our papers without mentioning the ascension. We missed the same thing that the disciples missed. We didn't realize, it wasn't close to our hearts, of what is the significance, not just the fact that Christ isn't here with us, but what's the significance about where He is right now? What is He doing, right? We forget that. I thought about this. I have to kind of re-explain to my kids, like every morning, um, of a work day, like, why I'm going to work. Like, if it was up to my kids, I would just stay home and watch cartoons with them all day long. So I say, Daddy's going to work, um, I'll, you know, honor God in my work, I have a job to do, all those things. They forget every time, and for us, are we so quick to forget where Christ is and what He's doing in the ascension? However, just because He's not here physically with us doesn't mean that we don't have His presence, Right? Point two is God has prepared us through sending of the Holy Spirit. I want to give a quick disclaimer that in a sermon, I do not have the time to talk about all of what the Holy Spirit uh, uh, means for us, right? I'm not going to be able to give a, a thorough job. Uh, what I want to just do is, is from our passage, what is this saying about the role that the Holy Spirit has in preparing us for these times between the Advents? Verses 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Then a little earlier in 1526 says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. R.C. Sproul, uh, gone to be with the Lord now, pastor, theologian, said this about this passage. Thought this was fascinating. Said, the first time I really grasped the implications of this text, I literally began to dance in the street and jump over fire hydrants. I said, Eureka, I can't believe it. All this time, I have felt like Abraham living in the Old Testament, looking forward to the time of Christ's coming or wishing that I could have been alive during Jesus's earthly ministry Because these people heard and saw him and his miracles. If only I could have been an earthly witness disciple of Jesus, my Christian life would be so much better than it is now. Yet our Lord said our situation, and here's the key, said our situation now is better than that of his disciples when he was walking on the earth. It's a bold statement, right? But that's what our text actually says. And here's what this looks like. So imagine if I were to say to you, what is it that would encourage you the most? Like, what do we all need? Probably most of us were to say, if all of a sudden Jesus walked through that door right now, right? And yet this text is actually saying that because of the work and the role of the Holy Spirit, we have something better. We have his continued presence inside of us. This is a fascinating truth and one that, I remember the first time I heard, um, when I was at Clemson Prez, where I became a believer, I believe, for the first time, um, that I heard uh, then David Sinclair preach a sermon. I can't remember what what passage it was, but he talked about the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. And for the first time, it was brought to my attention that the Holy Spirit has a ministry to us. And as I think about this time, as we're looking at what it looks like to live in between the two comings of Christ, in between the two advents, the Holy Spirit has a ministry for us that he wants to impress upon us to encourage us. And three things we see in this is ministry, not limited to, there's a lot, but just real quick here. First, we see a conviction of sin and then an assurance of salvation, a revealer of truth. So stay with me, I'm going to fly fly through these. Conviction of sin, verse 9 says, concerning sin, because they did not believe in me. In his commentary on this, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, pastor, theologian, brings up, it's interesting that not any one sin is brought up here in terms of what the Spirit convicts us of. But he mentions he convicts concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Uh, Boyce brings up that belief in Christ, the one thing God requires for salvation, is that which is hardest for the natural man even to acknowledge, let alone attain. See, the reality is without the work of the Holy Spirit, there's no conviction. There is no, um, no us coming to belief in Christ. I remember I heard an illustration. I don't remember where this is from, but someone said this is like if you went to a cemetery, right, and started preaching to a bunch of dead bodies. Nothing's going to happen, right? You actually need a supernatural work in order for people to come to be alive in Christ. But there's another role through this, and it's an assurance of salvation. Verse 10 says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Now, the order here isn't an accident. First, as we look at the Holy Spirit convicts, He convicts us concerning judgment and sin, the fact that we are sinful, that when we look at our lives, we see the ways that we we miss the mark, But then the natural question of that, if we can come to an understanding of, yes, I'm sinful, yes, I have not glorified God, I have missed the mark in terms of the plans that God had for me, then our natural question should be, well, how is my sin going to be atoned for? How is it that I'm going to be restored to the holy, the magnificent presence of God if I am sinful? I kind of describe it sometimes this way. Um, Why do you wash your hands before holding a newborn baby, right? Those are different now in the times of COVID, but um, in general, yes, there's germs and all those things, but there's also the sense in which like babies are just like clean, I mean, not always clean, but they just seem clean and, and perfect, and our hands are dirty, right? Like like they touch everything, and there's a sense in which uh, we shouldn't get dirty hands on something that, that is pure, and so how much more can we not get dirty hands on a holy God? And so when we come to that, realizing the conviction of sin, we're left with a question: So what's the plan, God? And as Joe mentioned during our, our confession, the plan is an everlasting one, the plan is, that is going to be a one-time sacrifice, that Christ offers us His righteousness, that it's an exchange of righteousness, that the Holy Spirit, through this passage, says that He takes the righteousness of Christ and gives it to us. Here's what this, this looks like. Um, this is kind of making me a little vulnerable here, so let's see if I can get through it. But I was a terrible student in middle school and high school. And, and if you think you know what that means, like take it down through more notches, I was awful. Um, and I always wonder what it would be like if one day during report card time, which is when I usually got grounded um, the day after, I opened up and I looked and I, and I saw my name on it, but then I looked it up and instead of seeing all these terrible grades, I saw straight A's, right? You naturally understand what I would be thinking. I wouldn't be thinking, oh man, good, my teachers just felt bad for me, right? They're like, that Tim, he's, he's a nice guy. He just kind of doesn't apply himself. So we're just going to change all his grades to straight A's. That's not what I would have been thinking. What I would have been thinking is that I got someone else's grades, right? But what also, what's the implication there? It means that some poor kid actually got my grades. That when they look at their name on their report card, they're expecting to see the fruits of their labor, everything that they earned, and instead they open up and they see failure. I know that sounds crazy, but that is is what's given to us in the gospel. That is when we say we have the righteousness of Christ, that the Holy Spirit applies, that it's as if our, our name on our report card still says our name, and yet it is all the work of Christ. And in the same way, when he took on sin, it's still his name, and yet it is all the penalty for everything that we have done he bore on the cross. And the Holy Spirit takes this, and he impresses it on our hearts. He says, this is true, that if you believe in Christ, if you profess Christ, you have his righteousness. And then lastly here, it says that he is the revealer of truth, the revealer of truth. Verse 13 it says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And also a little earlier in chapter 15, 26, says, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. Notice how at verse 13, it says, the truth. The implication here is, is a promise for the disciples who are involved in writing the scriptures, revealing that the scriptures are the word of God, that they are the truth. And this is a fascinating way that the scriptures, the truth, the word of God, that as we read it, the Holy Spirit impresses upon our hearts the truth, the word of God. As we look at this, another question for you, is this where you're getting your source of truth from? From the Word of God, as written and led by the Spirit. If I were to ask you, where do you go when life's biggest questions happen? Where do you go? Because reality, this text says, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you. The reality is we are all being guided by something. And I thought about this. I almost didn't share this illustration because I knew that I'd have to confess to several hundred people the movie that I watched two weeks ago, but I'm going to do it anyway. So... um, Two weeks ago, I was uh, super sick, just in bed, couldn't get out of bed, and um, when you start to, when you're really sick, for some reason, like cheesy Hallmark Christmas movies start to look really good, and I was scrolling through, and I almost landed on Christmas Vacation or Die Hard or something manly like that. Instead, I landed on a Christmas Prince, all right? I know by the chuckles, those of you who are laughing have seen this, so... These are all the same, right? I mean, I have to disclaim. I have to be truthful. Um, I'm not. Steph's not the one that has to convince me to watch Chris's Hallmark movies. It's me. Um, so I put this on, and I'm watching. And all these movies are the same, right? There's some. There's some character that is facing some kind of big moral dilemma, right? And the movie is meant to highlight sort of the best qualities. men and women and and trying to kind of get the main character to do the right thing, either realized through someone they met or some kind of fun Christmas memory or or something like that. And at the peak of the movie, um, those of you who want to watch it, I won't ruin it, but at the peak of the movie, the main character has this just like deep question that she has to decide what to do. And I heard something that I thought, ha, see, this wasn't wasted. This is beautiful sermon material, because I knew what I was preaching on. When we look at the Holy Spirit, the revealer of truth, the main character actually said this. Or sorry, she was talking to her dad, and her dad, here's his, his advice to her. He says, you have to listen to your heart. It will always tell you the truth. Yeah. That's, that's what our culture is hearing. And so when I heard that, I thought, Bam! Perfect sermon material. Like our congregation needs to hear that as we look at the role of the Holy Spirit, that He is the revealer of truth, and then you can imagine what happens. I spent so much time thinking, oh, the congregation needs to hear that. That then the Holy Spirit works. I thought, how many times I wouldn't say it that way, but how many times have I operated by that manual? How many times have I been guided by my own heart, by my own affections, when I have an opportunity to stop and to say, Holy Spirit, truth, truth scriptures, what is your revealed truth in this situation? And I really wrestled with it. I thought, why is it that so little the time, it's, it's not my first instinct to go to the scriptures, to say, God, what, 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 how do you say that I should live when I'm faced with these various battles, these various hard things in between the Advents. And for me, I came up with two. The first one is my pride, because here's what I have to say in order for, in order to really listen to this verse. I have to say that my skills and my life ability, the things I've learned, are not greater than the truth of God's Word. I have to actually swallow my pride and say, I'm not capable of, of, of applying your, uh, the truth of everything in this situation. Your word and you alone as impressed upon by the Holy Spirit is what I need right now. But then the f- second reason was honestly laziness. It takes work to not listen to your heart, to stop and say, God, what are you saying about this? What are you saying about sin? What are you saying about, about my marriage right now, about being a parent about how I should treat Sunday morning and, and what my life should look like. God, what are you saying? Because reality is, it takes work to actually search the Scriptures and say, what do you say on this topic? If you're visiting, uh, there's, there's, I know there's a lot of visitors. I, I don't know where you go to church, but this is even more so a reason to make sure that wherever you go to church, that they're preaching the Scriptures. That they're not just giving, the pastor's not just giving you more of himself, but that he's giving you the Word of God, the thing that we actually needs. So what does it mean to lean into this verse before we're going to point three? Verse 13 says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Here's what that means. That means get excited that God is not done with you yet. That means that, that in Christ, that there are, more, there are more riches to understand. There's more depth to his grace To understand what he's done as they're revealed in the scriptures. That the Holy Spirit's ministry is to give us the truth, to reveal to us the things of God, to reveal more to us. What does it mean that we have the righteousness of God? Then how then should we live? There's so much more truth to jump into. It's not like a Hallmark movie where there's one truth to take away and then for some reason we're just all fixed, right? That there is depth in the Word of God to lean into. But then, even more so than that, to reveal progression that, uh, that God has prepared us by giving us His presence. With this, I, I want to um, sort of walk you through, I think, what this actually means when we look at tracing the presence of God through Scripture. Exodus 19, one of the first times that we see God's presence show up for Old Testament Israel, throughout at the foot of Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19. Uh, people just left Egypt. The Lord tells Moses that if they keep his covenant, they'll be like a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Here's what it says, Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire." The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain great trembled. Then you see in Exodus 40, since the people wouldn't come to God, that God came to them, and it says, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, that we saw the presence of God actually come down and and stay in one place. Leviticus 19, you have those passages about uh, the priests and who can actually approach the presence of God, but then you see that it's limited, right, that it's only certain times, That at certain people, and the hope is that the presence of God would stay in one place, but because of Israel's uh, rejection, the presence of God leaves. And then you have this 400 years of silence, right? 400 years of of people wondering what what is this going to look like? What, What about everything that we heard from the Old Testament until breaks into history God with us? A baby comes. Into our mess, and, and, and Christ lives the perfect life, and he, he actually shows us the glory of God in the face of Christ. But then, even more so than that, He says He's going to send His Spirit, and then the presence of God comes and it comes inside of us. And here's the thing as Christians that I, I just think we either don't think about, or maybe we don't really fully believe it, or we don't talk about it. Whatever it is, here's the reality that same presence of God in the Old Testament that was dangerous, that was holy that only certain people could approach that same presence of God now in the Holy Spirit is inside of us as believers. You think about what that means. That means that everywhere we go, we bring the presence of God with us. And even more so, connecting from two weeks ago when Christ talked about abiding in me, abiding in my love, that word abide and the word tabernacle for the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling in us, it's the same word. So how is it that we stay connected to Christ? The Holy Spirit did not come at the expense of Christ, or even instead of Christ. The Holy Spirit came to give us more of Christ, to give us more of who He was, who He is. So now as temples of the Holy Spirit, we bring the presence of God. It should kind of go without saying that that means when our church gathers, that if we're believers, if we're in Christ, it should start to look like the aroma of Christ, right? Who Christ is should start to look. We should understand more of Christ when we get together. As I wrap up, I want to ask you a question. There's a lot of questions I ask, I know. Um, It's based on a book that I just finished called God is the Gospel by John Piper. And in it, he says, uh, he basically says, what is the best news of the gospel? Meaning, we we talk about being gospel-centered, out of the Reformation, we believe that we we went back to the roots of the gospel message, the euangelion, the good news. If we had to ask, what is the best news of the gospel, what is it? And in it, it's fascinating. He actually says, it's not just that we get heaven. It's not just that we get the blessings of Christ. It's this, you ready? That we get God himself. That we get the presence of God, the same presence of God that was lost in Genesis 3, that we are so longing for, that, that our world is, is rejecting. That same presence of God that we rejected is restored to us. That is the best news of the gospel. And so for believers, that grace that's offered by the Holy Spirit is a sure thing. There's also it's, it's known as irresistible grace. And sometimes we get offended by that kind of because what that sounds like it means, what it does mean is that we don't really have a choice when the grace of God comes, that, that, it, that it turns our affections and our wills toward God so that we will choose him. I, I kind of say it like this. Oftentimes we're offended by that because we picture the Holy Spirit like that parent who's like dragging their kid out of a toy store, right? Like the kid saying, no, no, like I want to stay here. I want to stay here. We think the Holy Spirit is doing that. But here's what this is actually like, right? Back to the graveyard. You were dead. You are six feet underground, and the Holy Spirit comes, and He digs you out, and He replaces your heart. And suddenly, your eyes are open, and you look around, and you realize you're in darkness. And the Holy Spirit says, do you want to get out of here? Do you want your affections to have new affections? Do you want to be given my spirit? Do you want my presence And once the Holy Spirit takes hold of you in that, there is not a soul that can resist it, and that is good news. That is the work, that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that is what God has been doing to restore to us the presence that has been lost. It is still hard to live in this already, in this not yet time, that this weird time where, where Christ is reigning and we see him and we have a relationship with him, and yet it takes work. And the thing to realize is God has not left us. God has actually sent Christ, and then Christ is exactly where he needs to be, continuing to intercede for us, and he's given us his presence because he has not abandoned us. And at the same time, it's not wrong to also long for the presence of Christ to return, to come to make all things new, to long for that day when we no longer have to have faith, Can't wait for that day. But in the meantime, Christ is exactly where he needs to be, interceding for us, and he has given us his very presence. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this truth. God, you didn't have to give us your presence. And God, you saw fit that in the midst of our rebellion, our rejection of you, of the truth, God you saw fit to come and to save a people. God, I pray that, as we're on the tail of, of celebrating Christmas of Advent, that we would understand that the celebration does not need to end. That in one sense, we celebrate you coming into our mess and we also celebrate and we look forward to you returning, and we are comforted by your spirit. That reveals the truth to us. God, I pray, that we as a church would bring this message, this message of hope to a culture who has rejected you, who has, as the scriptures say, uh, the sin of unbelief that are dependent on the Spirit coming and waking up a dead heart. God, would you do this? Would you allow us to see more of your glory, less of ourselves? And would you allow the ministry of the Holy Spirit to make known to us all the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus?